Good morning. Welcome to Bachelor Creek. So glad that you guys are here today, whether you're in person or joining us online. Uh, Thanks for worshiping with us. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 today, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Colossians 3. Have you ever heard the old cliche, off with the old, on with the new? My search for the origin of the saying has proved somewhat unsuccessful. I was only able to trace it back to a traditional Scotch folk song that was printed first in 1835. It goes like this. It is good to be merry and wise. It is good to be honest and true. It's best to be off with the old love before you are on with the new. I think that's pretty good advice. Now, I have heard this phrase, off with the old, on with the new, to describe everything from fashion designs to decorating schemes to political climates and sports trades. Now, for those of us who are Indianapolis Colts fans, we're all waiting with eager anticipation to see if Carson Wentz is going to get traded because after the end of last season, we are ready to be off with the old and on with the new. But perhaps my favorite explanation of this cliche comes from Urban Dictionary. It says that it refers to eating while sitting on the toilet. Think about that. Regardless of the context in which it's used, we all know that it means to exchange something that is old or worn out for something that is new or fresh. Not too long ago, I was going through my closet and I grabbed out a shirt and my wife looked at me and she says, how long have you had that? I thought about it, and I said, I don't know, maybe high school or college. She goes, that long? I said, yeah. She said, you need to get rid of it. I said, but, she said, when was the last time you wore it? I said, it's probably been a few years. She said, if you haven't worn it last year, get rid of it. I will admit to you that I have a hard time getting rid of old clothes. Think about it. What you wear reveals a lot about you. It's been said that that clothes make a man, right? So if you're wearing a a black suit or a dress, someone may think that this is a formal occasion. If you've got on flip-flops and swim trunks, someone's going to think you're going to the beach. If you've got a hard hat on, they'll assume you're going to a construction site. If you've got uh, shorts and and basketball shoes, then people are going to think that you're going to the gym. Uh, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning played most of their careers for one team, the Patriots and the Colts. But late in their careers, they joined a new team. And a new team required a new jersey. Peyton had to take off the Colts jersey and put on the Broncos jersey. It would be ridiculous to continue to wear an old Colts jersey on a new team. Spiritually speaking, Do the clothes we wear reflect the reality of who we are? When when people look at us, do they see evidence of a changed life? How often do we wear our old jerseys on our new teams? Over the last few weeks, we have been in a series through the book of Colossians called The Supreme Life. In chapters 1 and 2, we learn the essence of the gospel who Jesus is, and what he has done for us. We learned about how to avoid deception. Paul states very clearly that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is everything, and there is nothing else that is needed for salvation. The rest of the book of Colossians is really about taking off the old life and putting on the new. 
Chapters 3 and 4 are focused on conduct. That is, how we are to live as Christians. Now, I'm going to tell you right here from the outset that we're going to be moving fast today. And so I'll just tell you, there's going to be a lot of things left on the table. We're not going to be able to cover the breadth of all 17 verses in 30 minutes. That's why self-study is key. Reading God's word for yourself, diving in and reflecting on Scripture. Today, we're going to be going through 17 very theological verses. They explain the key to the gospel and our transformation. But these verses are also very practical. They show how a relationship with Christ leads to a new way of life. Hence, off with the old life, on with the new life. With your Bibles turned to Colossians 3, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This whole section is grounded in verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. The Colossians had been spiritually dead because of their sins, but Jesus gave them new spiritual life through his death and resurrection. Their, their new identity in Christ required a new way of living that would affect their character and their thinking. How was this new way of living supposed to happen? Well, first, we are to set our hearts and minds on things above. Set your heart and mind on things above. Verse 1, since then. 
Since then you have been raised with Christ. This is a reference back to chapter 2, verse 12, where it talks about that we have been buried with him in baptism and raised to new life. So now the practical implications of this transformation are now going to be explained. Paul commands them to set their hearts and their minds on things above. In contrast to the false teachers who were demoting Jesus, Paul reminds them that Jesus is seated in a position of honor and majesty and authority. Since Jesus is above, their mind should be focused on things above. Let me ask you this. What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? When you're driving to work, when you're sitting in the doctor's office, when you're going through the store shopping for your groceries, what do you think about? Do you think about everything that you have to do? Do you think about your daily schedule? Does your mind wander off into different, different fantasies? What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? Christ is above. It says he's seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is our goal and our intercessor. By him and him alone do we have access to God and the means to live a holy life. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Ephesians 1.20 says, Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God above in the heavenly realms. The things above are contrasted with earthly things or things below. What Paul means by this is that Christians are supposed to focus on spiritual things instead of physical things, and to focus on eternal purposes instead of temporal purposes. We should literally have God's perspective. It doesn't mean that believers are, are to live in, in some sort of mystical fog or to, to neglect the affairs of this earth. He's not saying that we should be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. What he's saying is that believers are to possess heavenly values that are expressed in our everyday lives. In other words, a heavenward gaze keeps life in its proper perspective. What are your values? Do they reflect your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ? Are your values more spiritual or physical? Are they more eternal or temporal? Are they more heavenly or earthly? Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God in Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Let us set our hearts and our minds on things above. Second, we're to cling to the hope that we have been hidden in him. Cling to the hope that we've been hidden in him. He continues, for you died. That phrase refers to the affections that we have for this world. If we are alive in Christ, then our affections for this world are as if we were dead. A dead man has no affections. He says that we are secure. We are hidden in him. That means that the powers of darkness have no hold on us. Isaiah 49.2 says, In the shadow of his hand he hid me. In his quiver he hid me away. 
Psalm 27, 5 says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. We are secure. We are protected. We are hidden in Christ. He goes on to say, Christ, who is your life? Jesus is a continual source of spiritual nourishment and earthly strength. Our great hope is that we will be with Christ and that we will have total perfection when Christ appears and we appear with him in glory. That leads us third. We are told to put off the old self. After Paul lays the groundwork for the new life and he challenges the Colossians to set their hearts and minds on things above, he paints a picture of the contrast between the old way of life and the new life. He describes the old life in verses 5 through 9. In verse 5, he launches into the description with another imperative command. When he says, put to death, therefore, whatever, is earth, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, he's not saying that we need to carefully regulate sin. He's not saying that we suppress sin. He means that we completely exterminate it. You know that if you were to have a, an infestation of, of bugs at your house, cockroaches or, or ants, what would you do? You, you would call an exterminator. And, and he would be hired to do what? To completely get rid of the problem. Not manage it. Not, not keep it under control, but to completely exterminate it. Put to death means literally to make dead. As Christians, we are to focus on ridding ourselves of these things because they belong to the old way of life, not new life in Christ. The old nature includes a lengthy list of sins. The first five are all sexual or sensual in nature. The word sexual immorality, it's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our English word pornography. It's an all-inclusive, it's a catch-all term that refers to any kind of sexual activity that exists in a person's life outside of the bounds of marriage. Impurity and lust refer more to sexual sins of the mind than they do sexual sins of the body. The evil desires and, and greed, these also carry sexual overtones in this context. Now let's be clear that God placed sexual desire into the human psyche and that desire is not in and of itself evil. But what Paul is talking about here is uncontrolled passion, misdirected erotic desire, and sexual excesses. It's been said that you sow a thought and reap an action. Oftentimes we think as long as I just keep it to myself, as long as it just exists in, in, in my thoughts, then it's not affecting anybody else. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt anybody else. But thoughts lead to actions. And so we have to rid ourselves, we have to completely dismiss this idea that as long as it's just in my head, it's okay. Greed refers to the belief that everything, including other people, exists for one's own amusement and pleasure. And then idolatry. Idolatry is greed to the highest level. It's where we replace Christ with something that we believe will be something more to us than God. So notice the, the progressive nature of these sins. Sin always escalates. 
Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Richard Exley comments on sexual sin. He says, lust is not the result of an overactive sex drive. It is not a biological phenomenon or the byproduct of our glands. If it were, then it could be satisfied with a sexual experience. Like a glass of water quenches thirst or a good meal satisfies appetite. But the more we attempt to appease our lust, the more demanding it becomes. There is simply not enough erotica in the world to satisfy lust and satiable appetite. When we deny our lustful obsessions, we are not repressing a legitimate drive. We are putting to death an aberration. Lust is to the gift of sex what cancer is to a normal cell. Therefore, we deny it, not in order to become sexless saints, but in order to be fully alive to God, which includes the full and uninhibited expression of our sexual being within the God-given context of marriage. So here's the question. Paul says this, but why do we avoid purity? Let me give you a couple of reasons. One, we love our lust and our sin more than we love God. I know that we don't like to hear that, but sin is appealing and sin is sweet when we don't have an appetite for God. If we feed on, on sin, then we will long for it and we will love it more and more. But I think secondly, we don't understand what it cost us. Our impurity results in separation from God. And so if I had a deeper love for God, then I would have a deeper desire for purity. Now let us not lose sight of the fact that, that, that God loves me so much in spite of my impurities. That my purity is so important to God that he sent his son to die for it. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for me once I, that I, I got pure. No, while I was in a mess, while, while I was sick, while, while, while my life was falling apart, he died for us. So the cross gives me a clean slate, but then it demands my pursuit of purity. And when God calls us to live a pure life, he's not trying to deprive you of, of joy. He's not some cosmic killjoy. No, when God calls you and invites you into a life of, of, of purity, he's inviting you to a life of greater joy. As you discover what you were created for all along, you find joy, you find satisfaction, satisfaction you find fulfillment. Paul rounds off this first list with two more reasons why Christians must rid themselves of these behaviors. In verse 6, he says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. In verse 7, he says, this type of behavior, it belongs to the old way of life. The warning of judgment here heightens the seriousness of this type of conduct. Paul is not nearly as interested in moral improvement as he is with people avoiding God's wrath. Now, the wrath of God has been a controversial topic in modern times. There are a lot of people who think that it's out of step with God's love. A recent survey among Christians would testify to this. A survey discovered the following beliefs. 97% believe that God is forgiving. 96% believe that God is loving. 37%, only 37% believe that God is a judge. 
and only 19% believe that God punishes those who do wrong. Church, do not be deceived. God's wrath is real. He does punish sin. His wrath is rooted in his holiness. His justice demands punishment for sin. If God did not punish sin, then he could not be God. So how can he be a God of love and a God of wrath? The cross. To remain holy, God has to punish sin. To show love, God became human in the person of Jesus Christ, and he took the punishment that we deserve upon himself. God's love and God's wrath are definitively seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Paul introduces a second list of behaviors that belong to the old life. He begins with another imperative command. He says, rid yourselves of all such things. And then he mentions hot tempers, which include anger and rage and malice. And then sharp tongues, which include slander, filthy language, and lying. Anger is this, this smoldering feeling of opposition that, that slowly boils to the surface. Rage is a quick, sudden outburst that flares up and burns with intensity. Malice is the deliberate and the vicious intention to harm another person. You can easily see the logic in Paul's order here. Hot tempers often lead to sharp tongues. So slander, that is the defamation of another person's character. A filthy language, that's not just curse words. It's any abusive language that people use to hurt each other. Lying, that's the attempt to gain an advantage over someone by manipulating the truth. There's a little poem that describes the destructive nature of a lying tongue. It goes like this. First, somebody told it. Then the room couldn't hold it. So the busy tongues rolled it till they got it outside. Then the crowd came across it and never once lost it, but tossed it and tossed it till it grew long and wide. This lie brought forth others, dark sisters and brothers, and fathers and mothers, a terrible crew. And while headlong they hurried, the people they flurried, and troubled and worried, as lies always do. And so evil bloated, this monster lay goaded, till at last it exploded in smoke and in shame. Then from mud and from mire the pieces flew higher and hit the sad victim and killed a good name. Distorted passions, hot tempers, sharp tongues, they're all part of the old life. They have no place in the new life with Christ. God wants us to get rid of these practices. He wants you to do whatever it takes to put them to death. And so as you look at uh, of that list there, which of these do you struggle with? What are you doing to get rid of them? Well, fourth, not only are we called to put off the old life, we are called to put on the new life. The Greek word translated for put off it's, it's the word that's used for, for taking off clothes. And so here, when he's referring to the old man or, or the sinful life, he implies the, the removal of dirty clothes at the end of a day. And this then is, uh, leads to the phrase, put on the new man. 
So this includes putting on fresh, clean clothes after removing the dirty ones. The message describes the old man as a set of ill-fitting clothes, while the new man is like a new wardrobe. So this implies that it's not just one article of clothing or a small part of our lives, but all of it, the entirety of it. One commentary states, because the old man died in Christ and the new man lives in Christ, believers must put off remaining sinful deeds and be in the process of being continually renewed into the Christ-likeness to which we are called. The verb tense of the words put off and put on, they describe actions that have already taken place, even though our humanity or our flesh continues to cause us to stumble. So we must constantly be remolded into a perfect, more perfect likeness of Christ. Romans 6.6 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So when we're told to put off the old way of life, it means that, that our faith and our actions must align. We're not just to have good intentions, but to follow our faith with actions. Good intentions do not abolish lust or sin. Discipline does. He's not just talking about behavior modification. This is more than sin management. This is about living a righteous life in Christ Jesus. In verse 12, he says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. So after you take off the sin-stained garments of the old life, put on the clean and virtuous clothes of the new life. A while back, a few friends asked if I wanted to go to the gym and play basketball. It, it had been quite a while since, since I had played, and I was honestly thinking that my basketball playing days were over, but they demanded, and so uh, I went along and played with them. And so I grabbed my basketball shoes out of the closet, and I put them on, and, and I was shocked when my toes went all the way to the end and it was uncomfortable. The size 11s that I had worn for my entire adult life didn't fit anymore. It was hard for me to, to figure out, but suddenly I was in the market for a new pair of shoes. It was off with the old and on with the new. Just like my old shoes didn't fit me and I needed new ones, Paul says that the practices of the old life, they don't fit us anymore. It's time to be fitted with the character of Christ. So what exactly is Jesus' wardrobe? In verses 12 through 17, the list includes compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love, unity, peace, thankfulness, gratitude. These are traits that should fill Christian minds and guide Christian hearts. So Paul tells us what to do. We're to put off the old and to put on the new, but let's get real practical. How do we do that? How do we put off the old self and put on the new? Let me give you three practical steps. Number one, realize that true forgiveness can only be found at the cross. As Christians, we're not to walk around feeling guilty, but forgiven. We are to walk around with an attitude of gratitude for the forgiveness that we've received rather than, than cringing with ongoing guilt. 
If you are plagued by guilt, then you do not truly understand the power of forgiveness. Christ died once and for all for sin. We are forgiven, and so we can continually drink from the fountain of forgiveness for all of eternity. Number two, we need to acknowledge that repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry. The word for repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It literally means to change one's mind. It means to go in a completely different direction. Repentance means doing life differently than how you've been doing it. It's doing life God's way instead of your way. Repentance involves our mind. It involves our emotions. It involves our will. Third, remember there are no points for style. True change pays no regard to style. God doesn't care how you fight sin. He just wants you to fight it. He's not going to come alongside of you and say, man, I really like what you did there. You were really creative in killing sin. No, he just wants you to fight it. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You need to know that saying no is not enough. It's not just saying no to sin, but it's turning to Christ and saying yes to him and finding pleasure and finding purpose and finding fulfillment in him and him alone. Always look to the cross. In times of temptation, keep your eyes fixed on things above. And don't fight the battle alone. Have accountability. Be vulnerable when needed. But above all, remember that the battle will not be won in your own strength. The gospel is your hope. As you plunge yourself deeper and deeper into the gospel, you will understand and come to a greater knowledge of the depth of love that God has for you. And as you experience and receive his love, your love and your affection for him will grow more and more. As you fall more in love with your Savior. I think of a groom on his wedding day as he stands there in front of the congregation and he watches his bride walk down the aisle, at that moment, that groom thinks that no man has ever loved as much as I do now. But those of you who have been married for a long time, you know that's not true. You know that a sweet life and love grows more and more year after year. And the more you've been married, the realize, you realize how little you love then compared to how much you love now. Over a decade ago, 19-year-old Jimmy Sanchez was one of 33 Chilean miners who had been trapped for over two months in a San Jose copper gold mine. While he was down there, he wore the character of Christ. He testified, there are actually 34 of us because God has never left us. No matter what happens for the rest of Jimmy's life, he determined that he was going to hold on to the lessons that he learned while trapped underground. While down there, he wrote, God wanted me to be here. I'm not exactly sure why, but maybe so that I will change from now on. Absolutely. God will use all sorts of things in our life so that we will change from now on. Church, I'm telling you, today is the day to put on the new, to put off the old. It's time to put the old life to death. It's time to clothe ourselves with the character of Christ. If there's sexual immorality in your life, get rid of it. If, there is, if you have a hot temper, it's time to chill out. 
If you have a sharp tongue, then tie it in a knot. Put on the character of Christ. And as this passage concludes in verse 17, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it for Jesus. If you find yourself needing a new set of clothes, today is the day. Would you pray with me? Father, our prayer today is very simple. That all of us who are here, that we would put off the old and we would put on the new. May our lives increasingly be described, would be shown to be lives where we are putting on the character of Christ. God, shape us and mold us to be more and more like Jesus. I pray that as we plunge ourselves into the depth of the gospel, we would see that your love overflows for us and that our response would be to to fall in love with you more and more, to align our faith with our actions. But God, I want to go back, God, and I think of I think of Colossians 3, verse 1. It says, so then, since you have been raised with him. God, if there's anyone in here today who, who that's not true of, if there's no one who, who has, if there's someone in here who has not had new life in Christ, God, I pray that today they would, they would make that decision to step over from death to life. They would call on the name of Jesus, that they would confess and repent of their sins. they would ask for the forgiveness that you so freely offer. That they would leave here today a changed person, a changed woman, a changed man, a changed student, a changed kid, a changed grandparent. God, may all of us, may it be said of us that we put off the old and we put on the new. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus today. Amen.